Okay, yay! I am so glad that you are here tonight, and I am so glad to be here, and that was one of the most refreshing things that I think I've had in a long time, was to sit up there and sing songs to God. That was beautiful. So thanks to everybody who came and made that happen. That was really awesome. And uh, we were just thinking, how can we... uh, how can we make this time such a holy time? You know, and I know so many of you are going after that, trying to make this a holy time in your life. Not a time to regress or not a time to go back, but a time to actually draw near to God, draw close to him, let him do whatever he's going to do and not be demanding about how he do it. (laughs) Right? Isn't that the quest of our life? I don't know. It's the quest of my life. Um, But, you know, a lot of times when we come to midweek, you know, I'm sure you come for various and sundry reasons. Why do you guys come to midweek? Anybody give me a shout out something. Why do you come here? To refresh your soul, to get out of Dodge, commonly known as the house, probably the children in it. <laughs> to see your friends, I heard someone say that. To be, to be encouraged, to be inspired. There are so many reasons to come to midweek. And you know that that is why Satan hates it right? He opposed it. I'm sure he opposed you today in some way (laughs) by arranging your life in such a way that would make you feel just miserable enough not to come and reach out to God for help. But you have persevered and you are here. This is already a victory that you are here. And I hope that you've already been encouraged. Um, You know, tonight we are uh, talking about the third sola. Are we on the third sola? Yeah. And uh, just as a brief review, we know that about 500 years ago, Martin Luther was able to pin these, you know, 95 theses, which is 95 things that he felt were not lining up with the Bible in the church that he was a part of. And he wasn't just a church member. He was clergy. He was full on, I'm for the church. I'm 100% God. I want this. This is it. But I do think that we're doing some things wrong right? So he was able to write down those things and say, hey, we should have at least have a debate about that. Well, it was quite a debate (laughs) because many, many people from that moment that he started saying things that went against the common practices of the church, from that moment, people started dying, And they were dying on both sides, you'll see, over the next couple hundred years, because some were dying saying, yes, Protestantism, we're for this. And some were being persecuted because they were Catholic. And both were persecuting each other. It opened up a great time, yes. But any time you go against what is normal, you better be ready, because it's not going to be easy. Hopefully, during this time of the holiday season, you're living a little bit of Martin Luther's life because you are going against the flow. We are going against what's normal. We are trying to stay woke. That is our, you know, that's our main vision, right, is we're going to stay woke. And, uh, you know, during this, during the 95 Thesis, he was, uh, after that, after he was able to debate those issues and actually not get killed for it, that was amazing. They, 
sort of uh, landed on these five solas that they felt like represented what the big changes were for the, for the Protestant church. And uh, we've already talked about two of them, but tonight we're supposed to be talking about grace alone. And, you know, I started thinking about how incredibly complicated and theological this debate could be. You know, it's, it could be very much at thought, you know, no, is it works? Is it, is it grace? Is it works? Is it grace? Is it works? And we have been hearing this debate forever. I started thinking, I, w- I almost drove myself crazy trying to think about it because it is such a deep thing. I couldn't even get my mind wrapped around. I started thinking about, you know, ever since the fall in the garden, human beings, after severing that relationship with God at the beginning, have always felt the automatic emotion after that was shame and that guilt that, that I've got to cover myself up, I've got to run away. Because they knew what they had done was wrong. And this is something we relate to on a daily basis. They knew what they had done was wrong, and so they wanted to hide from their creator because they knew that he had been right and they had been wrong. And ever since that moment, human beings have been trying to right-size this relationship it was severed. That fellowship, that beautiful relationship that was intended in the garden was somehow severed. It was cut short. And ever since then, human beings have been trying to bridge that gap back to God. And they did it in various ways. You know, some of, some of us, some of the people even way back then, knew instinctively, I have got a soul inside and it is hurting and it is disconnected from the person that made it. I need that connection. And so they created for themselves gods. They created for themselves things that they could worship. But they made God in their own image. Things that they could picture a God wanting. And so they thought, how could we create gods like that? So they created gods of their own. And in that time where there's nothing that gets giving back, you know, there's no God, only the God of the universe really gives back, right? The real creator was the only way that they could connect their souls. The only way that they were really going to fill an end to this shame and the end to this disconnection was to connect with their creator, But instead, they were connecting with things that were temporary fixes. They went after the praise of man, the the things that they could see, the lust of their eyes, right? And kind of, after that, you just kind of give up because your soul is so weary from searching for the real thing that they just went for anesthetizing. We see this in Romans 1. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, and their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Right? Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like man and reptile and birds. But they were searching for that connection. They just couldn't get it. So some from there go into some sort of hedonistic lifestyle so that they can numb all that pain that comes from that. But then others knew, no, there is a God. And you find people who are righteous. You find the Noahs and the Abrahams and the Jacobs and the Isaacs. You find these men that said, no, we're going to connect with actually the maker of our soul. And when we do that, that that connection makes us be able to take in the love that he has. 
But even those who are going after God somehow still found a way to recreate the system to where it was some sort of attainable system of earning their, I don't know, their keep, their salvation, their relationship. So we see as early as the Ten Commandments, so God gives the Israelites these Ten Commandments, and he says, this is going to be a beautiful way for you to live. And it is a beautiful way to live. It's It's an excessively beautiful way to live. But then... They created more and more and more laws, more laws, more laws. And because it is easier to look at a system and keep up with the system and to work your way. Now, what is it exactly that I have to do? Have you ever studied the Bible with somebody and you felt like they were just wondering what they were supposed to do? And you're looking at them and you're thinking, I'm not exactly sure what you're supposed to do, but something is not right in there. Something is something about what you're supposed to feel and what you're supposed to get. And you know they're not getting it because it's still about what am I supposed to do? And so this whole pharisaical system was set up, right? And so we have these people who intended to be righteous and they wanted to connect to God, but they couldn't connect to God because they were only connecting with their own righteousness. And that's as far as it got, is they could only connect with their own righteousness. And then Jesus comes... And he sheds this big, huge spotlight on how inadequate that system actually is. And he gives them a way for them to, to actually have that relationship with the creator that they have been trying to get all this time because everybody is going after the same thing. Whether you are anesthetizing it, whether you are religious, whether you are a heathen, a pagan, or the most religious person, Everyone is trying to get unfailing love. That is what they desire. They just have two different ways of going about it. So we see that Jesus sets them free from this. And it's this amazing thing that happens, right? We're set free from the law. And God goes, I know that you will never be able to live up to this law. But I love you anyway here. All these other gods are asking for you to sacrifice their, your children to them, but I will sacrifice my child for you. He turns it completely upside down, and he shows a God that sits on a throne called grace. And this is a miracle. And people are going crazy after it. They're going so crazy after Jesus Christ that they were crucified upside down. That they were burned. That they were used as human torches in the gardens of Nero. That they took the brunt for 300 years of every ill treatment that you can imagine. They were torn to pieces. They were fed to the wild animals. Because of this amazing freedom, because no one could take that. They could take their life, but they couldn't take their freedom that they found in Jesus Christ. And then a miracle happens. And one of those Roman governors who's been persecuting Christians all this time, he's been living through his, his history, you know, all the history of the Roman Empire, just killing Christians right and left. And he says, no more. We're going to make Christianity legal. More than that, we're going to make it the religion of the Roman Empire. And now the tail becomes the head. And the persecuted becomes the rulers. 
And where did that lead? (laughs) Within the next thousand years, we are right back where the Pharisees started. It's unbelievable. We have a system that is set up where you can pay penance. You know, I, I had to, I had to actually, I was emailing John Stein, right? Because I was like, I need to understand a little bit more about what Luther was trying to break free from. Because that's a long time ago, and I don't have the Catholic background. But in that time period, basically, you were paying penance. And penance is you are It's a way, and it's still called this today from all the research that I could see, and this is not going to be any sort of theological study, but it's a way of making up for your sins. That's actually what it said when I read, you know, answers from (laughs) Catholic.com. You know, answers from Catholic answers, you know. And basically it said, what is, you know, what is penance? And it's a way to, quote, make up for your sin. And so every time that you confessed your sin to a priest, then you would be forgiven, yes, but you needed to pay for it. You needed to do these things in order to show that you were really sorry. You needed to pay penance. And, you know, we had this other practice that we talked about last time, which was indulgences, which is basically buying. You know, that actually, to tell you the truth, I don't get it all, but it wasn't actually to purchase your forgiveness, but it was to purchase. They're saying, no, they were forgiven, but it's to help the consequences not to be so severe. So you're sort of paying off the consequences of that. But all of this stuff, it was a works-based system. And still, if you look it up and people say, well, what's the difference? This is grace or grace alone, but we say grace and works. And, you know, as I was just sitting through that debate, you know, watching both sides go back and forth, you know, I was like reading from these people, and I'd read from these people, and what does Calvin say? And what did, you know, I was reading all this stuff. And I realized it really just came down to what is a work? What is a work? You know, because we know that James says that faith without deeds is dead. So what is a work? But as I was reading more and I was thinking about this, oh, all this, what what does it work? we got to define a work. And, you know, you hear the Baptists and the Church of Christ people fighting. What's a work? Because some people would say, well, baptism is a work. So it can't be a part of the salvation process because it's a work. Does that make sense? And so you get, today we got this, you know, it's usually this fight. You know, no, 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 nothing can save you except for grace. But then in our day and age, we're not trying to get away from the works. It's actually, we're more trying to get away from the cheap grace. That doesn't change anything, right? And so as I was getting lost in that theological debate, I was like, well, you know, tell you the truth, I don't know. I don't know how to explain this very well. But I know what grace means in my life. And that's what I can share about tonight. So I'm going to just read a story. You know, I asked specifically if we could sing Splinters and Stones tonight. Because if I, had to, if I had to summarize what grace is in my life, it's that song. I mean, if you think about this, when all I had to offer was my worst, you saw my heavy heart and loved me first. Your beauty staring down my brokenness. You chose to throw your heart into the mess. 
compassion crashing down upon my debt. You were there. Every one of those lines is profound. You know, every time I read a song like this and I, I, I hear somebody griping about how the songs written today aren't theologically sound, I go, are you a lunatic? Have you read this? Do you get what this means? At a time in my life where I had absolutely nothing to offer, on that daily basis when I'm on my floor in my living room because I can't figure out how not to yell at my children that I love, God's grace comes crashing down on my debts. His beauty stares down my brokenness, and he wins. Those things you haven't been able to change in 25 years. You've been a disciple for 30 years and you still struggle and you feel like such an idiot. Do I still struggle with this? Like, when does this go away? Like, you really thought that there was going to be a pill that you're going to take that one and they're like, well, I'm not, I might be reasonable, but like, you five, 10 years, that would be okay. But 25 years? Come on. And after 25 years, you realize you're just getting to start to see how broken you actually are. That's beauty staring down your brokenness. That's the grace in my life. My favorite story, um, anyway, I'm not going to get to that first. The story that's in that song is the story of the adulterous woman, right? And she comes, not of her own free will, but because people were using her again. And this time they weren't using her for sex, but they were using her to prove a point to Jesus Christ. And they were saying, hmm, what should we do with her? She's, you know, adulterous. The lack of care in itself. The lack of care in itself that the religious people were bringing her to Jesus for an ulterior motive is already staggering. And I've often been intrigued by this story because it says he, he, he kneeled and wrote in the dirt. What was he doing? And I think about that a lot because I think, you know when you're just confronted with something that is so multi-layered? For me, I'm not going to put this on Jesus because he always knows what to do. But for me, I'm like, oh my, what? I don't even know what layer to go in on here. Do I get in on the fact that you brought this woman completely uncaring of her whatsoever to use as a pawn in your game? Okay. Or do I go in on the fact that you're trying to trick me and neither of these things is like God who you are claiming to represent? Or do I go in on, yes, it is wrong what she's been, actually, she's wrong. Okay. So I'm thinking, he's, he's just right. I'm just thinking because life is complicated It's a mess. Grace is messy business. But he sits there and writes in the dirt, you know, and then he gives this answer. And it's so profound, of course, that all of them have to just leave their stones and walk away because he knows exactly how to handle situations like that. It's genius why I follow him. (laughs) 
But then I love what happens after that because he says, you know, who are your accusers? Where are they gone? She goes, they're all gone. He goes, well, neither do I accuse you. Go and leave your life of sin. And I just think of that as the most perfect example of grace. I love you, and I'm not going to hold this against you. Now stop doing it. Titus 2 says that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It has a function in our life. It teaches us to say no. And I just started thinking, you know, the whole thing about works is just what side are the works on? There's, she's leaving her life sin. Of course that's a work. She's going to stop doing what she was doing. But what's the motivation? Grace teaches me to do something. Grace teaches me to do good works that I want to do. But I'm not doing my good works because I think it's going to make me somehow worthy of God's forgiveness, which will never come. So which side are the works on? Which motivation of the heart is it? Is it to get something or is it the product of something? We, as human beings, have always been able to make a relationship with God about us. It's unbelievable to me. <laughs> I am shocked by my own ability to make everything about me. Have you ever been shocked by yourself? Like, did, you, did I just really make that whole entire situation? You know when you have a situation that happens, and then like you totally reacted in a certain way because you literally thought it was all about you, and then later on you find out it didn't have anything to do with you, and you're like, oh, <laughs> that's it. Never mind. I... Never mind. Don't I didn't I didn't say anything. Don't worry about that. <laughs> it's just embarrassing how much we can make. And you know, Satan loves it. He loves it because that's what he's been doing from the very beginning. Did God really say, Oh no? If you eat that, then you'll be like him. So he appealed to her self right from the very beginning. And he appeals to us still today. It's amazing to me how much Satan has been able to make this season about self. Is it not staggering to you? I'm not, it's just almost funny. It's almost comical at this point. Even our cards are about us. <laughs> do, I mean, do you, I mean, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, don't get me wrong. I love your cards because I actually have them all up in my house. I have pictures of everybody. You know, they give me cards. And I'm like, oh, look at all my friends. I love it. So don't stop giving me pictures of yourself. But I mean, if you just take a step back outside of the society and you say, what is Christmas about? And they go, I think it's about families giving pictures to each other. <laughs> Or maybe just their kids. Actually, you get the ones that's just the kids. <laughs> and then, you know, it's funny. Anyway, I'm just saying, we have success, Satan has successfully made this season about us in every way. Sometimes when you get a regular card, it doesn't have a picture on it, you're like, oh, it's just a regular card. Ah, <laughs> uh, something about the manger, but Jesus, blah, blah, blah. You know what I say? Like, or maybe it's Santa Claus or the penguins, you know, one of those two. Or maybe it's a mixture. <laughs> the baby Jesus next to the penguins in the manger. But it is amazing to me how we, Satan is able to make everything about us. And sometimes with grace and the works mentality, we have to look at are my works a product of the grace that I've received, or is it me still trying to get something for myself? I'm earning something. 
You know, I've learned this in my parenting a little bit. Because I think all of us somewhere, maybe it's just me, I don't know. I think inside somewhere you think, if I just do this, they'll be like this. There's something, I don't know why. You just, I'm going to do all the right stuff. And then they're going to be like this. And, well, I mean, you know, I'm not even talking about, oh, they're going to want to be a violinist just like me. Or, oh, they're going to be want to be on this football team that I love. Or, oh, they're going to be, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about in general, you know. And then God challenges that. And you have a moment where you can decide, was I doing it for how they would turn out or was I doing it because it was right? There's always challenges to the ways we live and the works that we do. And those can be a really great thing if we look at them the right way. But anyway, my favorite story that I always come back to time after time concerning grace in my life and the way that it looks in my life is in Luke 7. It's commonly known as the sinful woman. (laughs) So I thought we could read it together and then just go to our groups. And so I know, you know, lots of times on midweek nights, it's a time for you to get some practicals, and we're going to go ahead and answer these questions in our groups. I just really want to reconnect you with grace today. That's it. I just unapologetically want to help you connect because I feel like you probably need it. You probably have a few things that you feel stupid about, bad about, embarrassed about, things that you feel like you should have overcome by now, things that didn't go well today. Maybe even on the way in here, you were still talking about them. So hopefully this can help you. In verse 36, it says, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped him with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him. Yeah, I know, right? So that like already is like, so he thought something in his head and Jesus answered him. That's the right fear we need to have right there. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender, and one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, 
but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And I think the reason that this story means something to me, and maybe it means something to you, is that I used to be Simon. And I probably still am on a bad day. (laughs) But I definitely was without knowing it. I think, you know, there's a time I was, for, for so long, I just was so amazed that I had found all the answers to life when I became a Christian. I was 25. And I had found answers to things that had been troubling me for like, you know, 15 years. Stuff I never understood. I just never understood the stuff. And all of a sudden, I see all these people who are living for God. Like, it's for reals? You do this for real? Like, when it says don't sleep with the boy, you don't do that? Like, I thought that, you know, everybody knows the Bible says that, but nobody does that. You know, these are like ideals. People talk about them, they don't do them. And I actually saw people doing them. And I was thinking, oh, this changes everything. And God changed my life so much. But looking back, you know, I look at that time in my life, and it was like, you know, a fingernail. (laughs) Now that I look back, it was like a fingernail that I let him have. I let him have all of that fingernail. (laughs) That was my baptism. I'm giving you my fingernail, Jesus. (laughs) I didn't know that. And nobody really does, you know, because you can't really count the cause. You can try. Count the cause. Yeah, everybody's against Jesus. I'm going to be for him. You know, whatever it is. I can do that, you know. I didn't know. But it was, it was as much as I had to give at the time, and Jesus met me there. That was his grace. Of course I didn't get it. He understood that. It was Grace that I got to experience in the waters of baptism when I was really only ready to give up a fingernail. But then over time, you know, that, that little thing, that adrenaline that happens when you get baptized and when you're, you know, that's going to wear off, just so you know. <laughs> it has to be replaced. Similar to limerence, when you fall in love with somebody. And you're infatuated, you're infatuated, you think about them all the time, think about them all the time, I'm dress for them, oh, okay. That has to, that's going to wear off. But it gets replaced with real love, which is better. And that's what happened in my life, was I moved into this serious, like, uh-oh, what's going on? And what God, what was going on was God was going to go ahead. He said, I think you're ready. You've been a disciple for like five years. I think you're ready to see the real deal. <laughs> okay. So we're just going to peel. We're going to peel back that onion a little bit. It's going to be a little more uncomfortable for you. And I, you know, every time that God peels back another layer, you have a choice to make. If you're going to let it be the last one. And you know what happens when you let it be the last one? You're done. You can stick around. You can keep coming to church, and you're going to be sitting way back there. And then first you move back a little bit, and then the next week you move back a little bit more. And then you're like, oh, I, I don't think I'm going to be, I don't know, whatever it is. And you just fade away and fade away and fade away and fade away. That was the last layer you were going to let God peel. 
Or you can go, whoa, it's getting like, you know, when you're peeling those onions and you're like, oh, <laughs> Woo, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. You know, <laughs> my son, this is a funny one. So Jonathan is like a baker now. Right. But he had to work in the kitchen one day and it was when they were cutting onions. I thought he was going to die. He was like, I can't see. <laughs> it's horrible. He actually, to his credit, does have sensitive eyes and skin, but it was hilarious. Anyway, but that's what it is when you go through those times with God and he's going to peel back another layer, is you just have to let it happen. But you know what? I'm so grateful for that time because that first, you know, really big chunk, and since then it's been just layer after layer after layer after layer, but there was that one. There's always going to be a layer that comes off of you people where you make a decision whether you're going to fall away or not. If it hasn't come to you, it's going to come to you. You have to remake that decision. You're not going to wander away. You're not going to fall away. It's not going to be your last layer. But I made that decision to stay, and it was terrible. It was hard. It was, I mean, I, I'm honest, man. It was, I hated the, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't like, you know, I didn't like church. I didn't, I hated the kingdom, but I hated the world more. I hated, just full of hate. Where am I going to go? Go to, you know, I'd go to listen to sermons and, you know, like, you know, you, I literally, if I was a kid, I would have looked like this. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about when you're sitting there and the, someone's talking and all you can think about is, you know, how, what, I, what are they, I know what they, whatever you're thinking is bounce, 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 bounce. And you have an attitude with whoever's speaking and you think it's them. It's not. But then God worked on me. You know, he worked on me, and he'll work on you. That is his grace, is to work on you. And even when you're ugliest, he's willing to throw his heart into your mess. And I was a mess but going through that and just deciding, well, I guess I'm supposed to do CR or something. Going through CR, and there was no CR, but I made one. <laughs> going through CR, learning all that stuff, and coming out and realizing, oh, I should be her. I should be her. Look, I should have been the one. I shouldn't be Simon. I'm Simon. And then connecting with, no, actually, I do feel like her. Because when you're not willing to admit how wrong you are, you don't get to experience grace. It says, he who loves, you know, who, right here at the end, right, it says, she did, um, therefore I tell you, her many sins were forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. You know, I was grateful to be a disciple, but I wasn't that grateful. I look at other people like, man, they're really great. I don't know. I'm not that grateful. I let God take off a few layers of that onion, and I'm like, oh, no. I'm that grateful person. I'm that grateful. I'm like that. that I love a lot. <laughs> I'm starting to glimpse how someone would say, crucify me upside down. You know, I shudder at the thought of any pain whatsoever in my life, don't you? I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm a wimp. I don't like, I got, I got, you know, had the babies like 
Come on, bring on the medicine. Whatever What's that, epidural? Let's get it going. You know, like I'm not, I'm not a pain person. You know, I'm a drug addict. You know, that, I'm just saying, I don't look for ways to experience pain. I'm not getting a tattoo. Not happening. That looks very painful. I do not sign up for pain. I only have one piercing. Even that, I was like, ow. <laughs> ow. You know, like, I don't like pain. It would take, it would have to be a real love for me to endure pain. And I pray to get, but I under, I'm getting, I'm like, oh my goodness. I can see it almost what this grace can produce. You know, when you're not willing to just be a sinner and to be wrong, you don't get this love. You don't get it. Grace gives me the opportunity to love God and to be in the middle of his love. Grace gives me that opportunity. You know, my, that scripture in um, Jonah where it says, um, those that run after worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. You know, when we run after this anesthetizing and, you know, making ourselves feel better and going after things that are going to be a quick fix in the moment, you miss out on the grace that can be yours. You miss out on being the, on your knees, on the ground, broken, and feeling God come down and pull you up with his hand. You miss that every single Sunday when you come to church is, an ad, is a chance, it's an opportunity for you to experience grace. That's what I do every single Sunday when I come to church. When I take communion, I get to experience his grace again because he didn't give up on me. I don't care how bad the week was. I get to come and worship and fall at his feet and experience his grace again. Yes, one more week. But that's not enough just one more week. I need to have that one more day. (laughs) And when we are able to become this woman, she could see it doesn't matter what anybody else thought about her. Sometimes I feel like a lunatic in this place. You know, people look at you like you're crazy because you actually care what God thinks. I do actually care what God thinks. In fact, I only care. (laughs) I am getting to the point where I only care what he thinks. I love you guys, but you're not going to be standing there with me. And we need to have a little bit more of that fear. Not the fear of what other people think. But the fear of what God thinks. Not the fear of how we're going to die, but meeting our maker. The right kind. The right kind. You know, I was just talking to my kids yesterday about there's two kinds of fear. There's a bad kind of fear. Because we have the fear doll, you know. So this fear is afraid of everything that could happen here on this earth. And this fear, because there's another fear doll. This fear is the right kind of fear. It's the beginning of wisdom. Because it fears what God thinks. So we do need to have fear in our life. We just have to have the right fear. I live in that. I live in that strange tension of I live in a holy fear, trying to become holy with every word that comes out of my my mouth and every thought in my head and every meditation of my heart, all the while knowing I am Never going to be holy enough. 
and that God's grace is what makes it possible for me to have a relationship with him. You know, you can't, we know, we know that the works aren't going to buy us anything, but the works come as a product of that exact thing. When I think about what my life has done, what, what I do with my life, it's because I think, I go, after all God has given me, what else can I do? What would be the proper response for someone giving their son's life for you? What is the proper response when someone would sacrifice like that for your family? You know when someone does something nice for your family? Just something nice. Like they go, man, I see that you're really struggling. Let me fix you some dinner. You know how you feel? to? Oh, man, that was so nice. You know, when someone does something, they just sacrifice a little time for you. That's so nice. I was thinking about that when they said, you know, has say, I'll babysit for you. And I was thinking, oh, that sounds so nice. <laughs> but think about that. If God's saying, I'll sacrifice my son for you, what kind of response does that deserve? Every work that I could possibly imagine. I will do anything I can. I'm, every single work that I can do, every good work that's been prepared in advance for me to do, and that's what I'm going to do. The thing in closing I will just say about her is that, you know, in the end, later on, and, you know, after all this, she humbles herself. She comes in and she goes, oh, no, I get it. You're God, I'm not. You're whole, I'm broken. You're, you're everything and I'm nothing, right? That was her attitude towards God. And, you know, here's Simon sitting at the table. You know, he's like feeling like a peer with Jesus. You know, feeling like they have some things to talk about. Because he was feeling on par with him. But 2,000 years later, we're reading about her, right? We're reading about this thing that she did for him. You have a choice. You have a chance today to choose who you're going to (laughs) be. You have a chance to choose who you're going to be. And if you're going to live in your grace every single day, the fact that you woke up today is God's grace because he gave you another chance today. And that's honestly how I feel about it. It's God's grace that I got to wake up today. It's God's grace that I have uh, two legs that still work, two ears that almost still work, two eyes that almost still work. You know, these are God's graces every single day. This is living in God's grace. Choose who you want to be today. All right, let's go to our groups.